You're listening to an Art Gallery of Ontario podcast. AGO Talks are recorded live in the gallery and feature artists, writers, and curators exploring how art shapes and inspires us. Please visit us online at ago.net slash talks. I don't know about you, but it's been an extraordinary day, and I'd just like to thank the two panelists so far. Now I pause and you clap. Really great. So, um, two parts to my introduction uh, to the incomparable Thelma Golden. Uh, Thelma Golden is the director and chief curator of the Studio Museum in Harlem. She began her career at the Studio Museum in 1987 before joining the Whitney Museum of American Art in 1988. In a decade at the Whitney, she organized groundbreaking exhibitions including the 1993 Biennial and Black Male and served as director of the Whitney Museum at Philip Morris. She returned to the Studio Museum in 2000 as Deputy Director for Exhibitions and Programs and was named Director and Chief Curator in 2005. Well, the Studio Museum Golden has organized many notable exhibitions, including Chris Ophelia, Afro Muses, Black Romantic, Freestyle, Frequency, Glenn Ligon, Stranger, Martin Purrier, The Kane Project, and Isaac Julian. Vagabondia. She teaches and lectures at several institutions and internationally, including Columbia, Yale, and the Royal College of Art in London. That's my first introduction. Um, I'm part of a museum director's group. It's pretty hoity-toity, and Thelma's part of it. And we've had dinners in the Temple of Dendur at the Met, I saw her last at the Studio Museum for the Charles Gaines opening. Uh, she did a wonderful thing for the AGO board. We did a trip to New York and she was gracious and thoughtful and provocative in talking to us about what her institution uh, meant, means, will mean. Uh, and that's all by way of saying, uh, for me, she is a hero. She is in my world which is cause-driven, uh, the highest standard of somebody who does what she does to make a difference. And I often think about two parts that are separate in my mind and completely connected in Thelma's, and that is the front page of the newspaper and art history. And Thelma, more than anybody I know, knows how to connect the two with programming and a position for institution that really matters. So it's my privilege to introduce Thelma Golden. Let me tell you about my last interaction with her. It was about a year ago. I forget where, it was in a museum somewhere. And I went up to her and I said, you know, we're just getting started. We're sort of in the middle of, we're just getting going on a Jean-Michel Basquiat show. Tell me what to do. And she looked up at me, and she pointed her finger right at me. Don't blow it. <laughs> so with great pleasure and with real respect, Thelma Golden. Happy, thank you. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Matthew. Well, thank you. I want to first thank the Art Gallery of Ontario for having me here today. Um, thanks, Stephanie Smith, who curated this 
fantastic exhibition, and to my colleague Matthew Teitelbaum, who, of all of my colleagues, um, I always think of as a person who doesn't start the conversation with answers, but always with questions. And I feel like all the years I've known him, I've had amazing conversations as Matthew has thought deeply and profoundly about what museums can and should be. So when he did, yes, say to me, we're gonna do a Basquiat show, and I said, don't blow it. It's because I knew that he was gonna enter into this task with a sense of what this could be and mean for not only the AGO or Toronto, but also for the legacy of Jean-Michel Basquiat. So thank you for that. I also wanna to thank Toronto. This is a city I've been coming to for years and have always felt very much at home here deeply, deeply invested in the many, many kinds of conversations that you all are having. I almost feel like I should skip my talk, though, after that last encounter and feel like we need to have an encounter session for black Canadian artists, you know, and I'm, I'm thinking about that for a moment, but, okay. But that's the other thing. But have always, always had amazing, amazing moments in the city and, and very in this institution and others, and very particularly at the power plant where I was thrilled to organize an exhibition with my colleague, Wayne Bearwalt, the former director of the artist, the amazing artist, Glenn Ligon. And also for me, Toronto has always meant so much because of the presence of my dear colleague, friend, and co-conspirator, Ken Montague, and his wedge, which has always felt like the direct line between Toronto and 125th Street in the act of work showing artists of African descent. So fantastic, amazing to be here. I wanna thank the earlier panels. They were fantastic. You all sort of opened up so much, unpacked so much, really created the ground, I think, from which lots of conversations can and should happen about Jean-Michel Basquiat and his work and what he means. Now I changed up the format here, as you can see. I'm not gonna stand over here. This is a discriminatory podium because it's really made for someone who's probably five, five and over. <laughs> this is something that you know, I'm always conscious of, you know, whether it's like the short people podium or the tall people, this is a tall person podium. So if I stand over there, I spend my whole time trying to look over and see you all. So I'm gonna stay over here sit down, kind of Oprah style, um, sort of all, all set up here to really un turn my, my countdown clock on so that I know what I'm doing. Um, but really to say that when Matthew called and asked me to do this, I said no, I did. I immediately asked him to think about some of my colleagues, most specifically Franklin Sermons, or Kelly Jones, or Greg Tate, colleagues who spent a lot of important, significant time thinking about Basquiat's work. Because I knew that quite potentially that I wasn't sure how to enter into this conversation. You see, I didn't really know Basquiat. And in some ways, that makes me often feel unqualified in certain ways to deeply engage. And I say that not from an art historical place, because obviously as curators and art historians, we often work with artists we don't know. But Jean-Michel is so central to my sense of myself as a curator, and not having known him makes it so that I have spent these intervening 27 years since he died continually trying to figure out the space in which our relationship exists. 
Much has been said about this photograph. It's used, of course, to think about and to present the exhibition that's here at the AGO. But really, this photograph, as it appeared in 1985 on the cover of the New York Times magazine, very significantly set my path. Now, you see, it's, it's hard to go back to that moment in 1985, but you have to remember, if an African-American man were on the cover of the mag a magazine, he was either a famous entertainer, quite potentially a well-known civil rights leader or politician, or notorious in some large societal way. So to imagine at this moment an artist, a black artist, a black male artist, on the cover of the New York Times Magazine, for, before one even entered into the text, it was a singularly transformative moment. For me, it happened in 1985, which was my second year of college, studying art history and African-American studies. But really, in a way, I have to go back. Because to understand what made me a curator, what makes me a curator now, a curator devoted to artists of African descent, I sort of have to go back to the beginning. I grew up in a household in which culture um, was very much loved. But I didn't grow up around real works of art. I grew up with this in my house, this Picasso. My mother always referred to it as a print. It was really a poster that my parents bought in Spain, but my mother felt like the provenance, she bought it in Spain, and it was Picasso, made it a significant work of art. And this, in my mind, was sort of the precious work of art I grew up with. I, I did not grow up in a house where we had art around. I did, however, have the occasion to grow up in New York City where there was amazing, fantastic art museums. And my love of art began very, very early in my life for that reason. But really, the first black artist I ever understood and knew was JJ on the show Good Times. Now, again, so much of this is about my mother, I realize, and I'm sitting on a chair, which could be a couch. You all can take this where you want. But um, in those days, uh, you know, in my home, we had one television. My brother, who was a year younger, and I had to agree on what shows to watch because you can only watch one at a time. This is like pre-DVR culture, right? So we had to. And my brother loved Good Times. My mother did not love this show. Being an African-American woman, you know, raised during the, you know, 30s and 40s, an active participant in the civil rights movement, JJ was on a line for her. She was not so into all of that. But this was one show my brother and I agreed upon, so for her, 30 minutes of quiet, we could watch Good Times. And I was fascinated by JJ, who was an artist. It wasn't until later in my life, of course, that I had the occasion to meet the artist who made these works that JJ made, and his name was Ernie Barnes. He happened to be an ex-NFL player, quite a good one, who then went on to become an artist to do not only the work on this show, but many of Marvin Gaye's album covers and so on. But JJ, for me, was the beginning of an understanding that these works that I was seeing in museums on field trips were made by someone and that also that someone could quite potentially be a black person. This was transformative. Graduated from high school, went to Smith College, and became an art history major, which was very Mona Lisa Smile. Anyone see that film? Do you remember that? OK, so you know what I'm talking about. Deep art history, the iconography, the references, the reverie, art history, the canon. I, however, was already sort of radicalized into this idea that there was a place for me, perhaps, in the art world imagining myself invested in the work of black artists. Now, I know I'm getting into territory here because you all just sort of unpacked all this. Is it, shouldn't it, are we, aren't we? But let's just say 
1983, I, in one of the great, still great art history, undergraduate art history programs in this country at Smith College, said to the leading modernist in the department, I want to study black artists. And he took a book off of the shelf in his office during his office hours, which I waited, quaking, outside before. And he handed me a book with an image, this one, on the cover. And he says, you want to study black art? Here it is, Frank Stella, black painting. <laughs> so imagine a few months later, literally, when this image is on the cover of the New York Times magazine. This man, this artist, about this work. It freed me. It made me know that there was already a path being blazed that I could walk down as an aspiring curator to fully commit to the artists of my day and of my time. This did not come so easily, but it seemed so clear that I had to pursue it. Now, what's also, as a sidebar, what's also kind of amazing about this is at this very moment that I saw this, I was taking a seminar, not at Smith, but at Amherst College, which was down the road from Smith College. And it was a seminar called, What is Modern About Contemporary Art? And everyone in the class was asked to pick an artist, a contemporary artist, and write about how they exhibited modernism. So armed with my New York Times magazine, I decided I wanted to write about Jean-Michel Basquiat. I had to fight this, because this was not this professor's idea or ideal of who an artist might be. Now, the reason I bring that part up, I mean, that's a boring part of the story, it's just that I spoke about this to all of my friends. Like, I just couldn't believe it, that I wasn't going to. I mean, I prevailed in the end. It wouldn't shock you. I just you know, wore him down enough that he let me write about Jean-Michel. But at the time, I talked about it to all of my friends. One of those friends was one of my Amherst friends, a fantastic young man who at the time was you know, always interested in my art interests, took on my fight, knew that I was fighting this, and his name happened to be Jeffrey Wright. We graduated from college, and fast forward some years, and he called me up and he says, Thelma, you're not gonna believe what I'm doing tomorrow. What, Jeffrey? I'm auditioning for Julian Schnabel to play Jean-Michel Basquiat. It was a weird moment where we both sort of felt like the universe had sort of set this out for us. But in that moment, considering Basquiat and going back and looking at his presence in the 1983 Whitney Biennial, and really considering also that I had in my very own high school years evidenced the culture in which Jean-Michel was coming out of, not just art culture, but the culture of the music, of the clubs at that moment. Um, I had to pull out this uh, photograph of Fred, my dear Harlem neighbor and friend, but you know, also very much, the word pioneer is often used when talking about um, fab, but what one needs to understand is that to understand that era at all, he is lived it and it's all in his head. You know, one could just, you can ask fab as you saw, one question about that moment and to have it all open up. So that in that time, I sort of felt there was a way in which my own path through art and artists of African descent would somehow, in some way or another, encompass Jean-Michel. 
A few weeks ago, I had a similar experience to the one I had in 1985, because just as I encountered that image of Jean-Michel on the Times Magazine in the dining room of my Smith College dorm, when I opened my door um, on a Sunday morning to my New York Times, there was the Times style supplement with this image of Jean-Michel on the cover. And I actually had a very strange experience, because the moment when I looked at this photograph, for five seconds, I forgot that Jean-Michel was not alive because he had been so present in my life in these intervening 27 years. And seeing him, particularly this image, made me sort of remember yet again this fact that I never met him, though he felt so present. So in some ways, to think about Basquiat then, Basquiat now, and to think about him in my path, I really had to go back and see, well, what is it that created for me a dialogue with this work, and what did it create? It isn't the obvious thing, because I have never done an exhibition of Jean-Michel's work. I've never written a singular essay about him. I've never done what I have done for so many other artists with this particular artist, but yet he has been central to who I am and what I've done. When Jean-Michel died in 1988, I was by then working at the Whitney Museum. I was a curatorial assistant, um, not yet a curator, working for the curator, Richard Armstrong, now the director of the Guggenheim Museum, but also working alongside Richard Marshall, another curator at the Whitney's assistant. Richard was close to Jean-Michel, so I certainly picked up the phone on several occasions when he called. I'd been in the museum when he'd come to openings. In those years, of course, when I left work, you know, it was the, those days of being an assistant, it was pre-email, so when you left, you were gone, right? You know, the, no way your boss could find you because you just went, you know, went home, and no one could find you. In those days, we would go to clubs, and, and, and there was a way in which, in the sort of late 80s, that Jean-Michel was present. So when he died in 1988, this was something that kind of stopped everyone at the Whitney Museum. He had deep ties there and deep relationships. And what I came to understand first upon his death was it had me not actually thinking about his work, but it actually made me, in the moment of knowing it, think about the work of Bob Thompson. Bob Thompson was an expressionist painter who worked in Provincetown, Massachusetts, and then New York, and then Rome, between 1959 and his death in 1966. He made an incredible amount of work, probably about the same amount that Jean-Michel made, 600 to 1,000 paintings, worked in a way that really opened up the dialogue about content and subject, works that were deeply inspired by art history, but he also had a very distinctive vocabulary that was all his own. Jean-Michel died at 29 of a heroin overdose, and the echoes of those two stories were undeniable. And I remember in the weeks after Jean-Michel's death, the cultural and music critic Stanley Crouch, who'd written the seminal essay on Bob Thompson called Meteor in a Black Hat, said to me, you want to understand about Jean-Michel and what might happen to Jean-Michel? Spend some time thinking about Bob Thompson. And I did, deeply. I spent time looking at Thompson's work in those years from 88 on. I began to think about this idea of what it meant to be a black artist, so uniquely positioned in your own voice, but also operating in these unique ways in an art world, which is who Thompson was. 
Fast forward in those 10 years, and while often talked about during my time at the Whitney exhibitions, I'm deeply proud of the 1992 Biennial, 1994's Blackmail, the exhibition that really haunted me and I made because of Basquiat was my 1998 retrospective of Thompson, um, the first one that had really happened in large scale um, since his death. And that really was my way to reckon with what I felt the legacy of Basquiat could or would be in that time, to look at an artist who came before him, but to try and understand the ways in which this was and can be a story that we have to encompass in art history if we're going to understand a certain kind of black creativity. But then coming to this moment, to this exhibition, I really had to begin not just to look at the work again, and I really think possibly, and I'm sure many in this room could actually prove this, but I actually think in the intervening 27 years since Basquiat's death, there's always been a Basquiat exhibition somewhere. There's always been a moment where these works have been on view, and they have allowed me as a curator to look at them over and over again, works that are incredibly familiar, works that have been reproduced many times, but yet I still will say with a certain amount of surety on my part that I don't yet fully understand Basquiat and what these works are about. I have often thought about the fact that there's a way in which he opened up certain dialogues in the late 80s that really created the ground that I'm working in now. But my own work really began to look at that period in a wider way. So in thinking about artists of African descent, for me, there is, of course, this great history in the United States that begins in the 19th century and moves to the middle of the century with the great practitioners um, who made their careers sort of defining and redefining, questioning and re-questioning what it means to be an artist who is black making work in America. But for me, as I began to think about my own curatorial career after becoming a curator at the Whitney in the 90s, I needed a new formation, a new ground from which to work. And for me, it could be understood through three artists whose work also was influential in the 80s, in a different dialogue than Jean-Michel's, of course, but with a similar kind of radical paradigm-shifting sensibility. One was Adrian Piper, another Robert Colescott, and David Hammonds. For me, this is the kind of holy trinity from which everything I have done has been made. But that period was rich in many artists and in many different ways. And when I think about the fact that Martin Purrier was working at that time, making his lyrical sculptures, but I also think of Howard Tanina Pindell, an artist, a feminist artist, who was working not only in making art, but with activism at the core of her work. Thinking about Carrie James Marshall, who has defined over the last 20 years the predominance of an idea of not only what is a black artist, but what is a black aesthetic, and his idea that there's a necessity for one, because it's the only way to move away from this dialectic about who is a black artist and what, does, what happens in the space of black creativity. And also, artists who are emerging at this moment, like Lorna Simpson, who really define a conceptual sensibility that really was at the core of so much of what I was doing. So 
In thinking about, you know, how I, I, this talk made me think about the fact that I have curated around Jean-Michel, but not necessarily in any centrality at all. And so in the probably 92 or 93, when I began thinking about an exhibition that could look at, yes, black masculinity through contemporary art, I knew that at core the exhibition I wanted to make was one that was also going to take on an idea of what a certain kind of black creative male genius meant and the ways in which it had perhaps been misunderstood. And to do that, I went to a friend and a colleague, um, Greg Tate, also one of the great minds uh, when it comes to thinking about Jean-Michel's work. And without an exhibition that had a name yet, I said to him, could you take on this idea for me of a black male genius? And really, it was Basquiat that I was thinking about. Because in some ways, I look back at 94, and I could have made an exhibition called Blackmail, which I did. Or I could have taken on Basquiat's work singularly, knowing that everything encompassed in it also touched on the many issues that were in this exhibition. And when I asked Greg to do this, he said to me, and then wrote as the introduction of his essay, and I'm quoting him, so your soul sister, the curator, invites you to write an essay on black male genius, and like a fool, you take up the invitation. Knowing it's a fool's mission, on par with trying to explain wave particle theory to a medi medieval alchemist, or more pointedly, like trying to explain swing to the severely unswung, funk to the arid, or mad flavor to the undeaf, dumb, and bland. Now, Greg exaggerated that, but really what I wanted to do was to try and make an exhibition which could pinpoint this idea of what black masculinity, the intersection of gender and race, meant through the eyes of artists in contemporary art from the late 60s to the present. I wanted to take on both this sort of larger idea of is there an exhibition that could be made that was not about the racial identity of the artists themselves, but of artists looking at identity as the subject of artwork. It's an exhibition that included in this image, you're seeing a detail of Robert Arneson's painting, special assistant to the president, and also a detail of Fred Wilson's uh, sculpture, Guarded View. It was an ex exhibition that included artists like Renee Cox, David Hammonds, Barclay Hendricks, Glenn Ligon, Robert Arneson, and Robert Maplethorpe. It was an exhibition that, in my mind, curatorially interrogated through the different ways in which art explored black masculinity. It's an exhibition that looked at different kinds of visual languages. So it looked at figuration as a place from which to understand image making in very clear ways. But it also was an exhibition that looked at, again, this sort of conceptual language that the kind of multiculturalism of the middle 80s created and now is in full form with artists like Fred Wilson. I did not know how to figure Jean-Michel into the exhibition, but I knew he had to be there. I knew that he would be there, whether I included him or not. What was most interesting and complex for me was the fact that Jean-Michel, born in 1960, the exact same year that Lorna Simpson, Lyle Ashton Harris, Glenn Ligon were all born, was not around, was deceased by the time this happened. 
so that I was showing him in the context of his peers, but it brought out this great question. What work would he have been making even then in 94, in just those years right after his death? And the choice of what to include, it became clear to me that I was going for thinking about Jean-Michel at a certain place in his essence. And that is through the work which named the space in which he drew so much inspiration. And that is the way in which the text formed itself as a way to see through those texts an entire encyclopedia about a kind of black creativity and worldview and consciousness that takes in and redefines in ways that are powerful and profound. I was thinking the other day, I was at the Armory Art Fair and um, I saw a painting of Jean-Michel's in a dealer's booth. And I realized that they're really neat, and I'm saying this out loud because if it's a good idea, um, then it will be sort of copyrighted, sort of. But I realized there needed to be the equivalent of a rap genius for Jean-Michel's paintings, right? Like there needed to be a way in which every single one of those paintings is annotated because encapsulated in every single one of them are about 15 volumes right, of a world, his world, the world, that continually reinvents itself through the thought of what he meant and what we can understand. So in the exhibition, that set of drawings that I included, which included several of the famous Negro athletes, which were across the room from Jeff Koons's images from that moment where he reappropriated the Nike posters of NBA players. But I also realized that Jean-Michel informed my curatorial work through my sense that in what seems to continually be the ways in which art history cannot contain Jean-Michel, because the canon in some ways creates very small boxes for the work to exist in, but then there have been radical critical voices which have expanded our understanding of him in ways that are wider than there is an art history of this moment that can be understood. And I wanted to know what that means, particularly when we're talking about artists of color. What does it mean when there need to be new canons, new ideas, new ideas about taste, such that the definitions that exist become irrelevant? I realized that I wanted to do that not simply as a curatorial exercise, but one that was incredibly personal. So in 2004, after um, leaving the Whitney in 98 and coming to the Studio Museum in Harlem, a museum that was founded in Harlem in 1968 expressly to present the work of artists of African descent, to collect that work, as well as to interpret it, to create a space in which the interpretation could take on its most broad and deep possibility. I made an exhibition that I wanted to see if even my own very um, acknowledged but perhaps not yet public ideas about what I even considered art and how I could understand the lines between high and low, mainstream and margin, intention and reception and what that might mean. This really goes back to my mother as well, because um, I you know, was raised by two incredible, fantastic people. My mother, now deceased, and my father, who is 89 years old, Artie Golden. Both of my parents born and raised in New York City. My mother from Bed-Stuy, Brooklyn. My father from Harlem. And when I was born, um, they moved to Queens. 
Um, that's another thing. You know, I always say that I didn't meet Jean-Michel, which is sort of a, a, a weird thing in my sense of bona fides, because people often enter into conversations with me and guessing my age, and when I started in the art world, it could have been possible I did. But also when I say that I'm from St. Albans, Queens, and knowing when I was raised, then people often begin to have a conversation with me about hip-hop, because in theory, I was there, but I actually wasn't there, because I was in my bedroom, like, listening to Joni Mitchell, right? When... <laughs> So, you know, people are like, like, oh, were you at like Baisley Park and da 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 da? And it was like literally five blocks from my house, and I was at home. But um, actually, Fab witnessed this one night when, um, in the presence of probably two of the greatest rappers of our time, they completely made me feel bad about that fact. Like, you know, how is it? They're like, you shouldn't even say you're from Queens, because, <laughs> you know. Like, like, how could you not, you know, have been a part of that? But I say I like to say that um, two fantastic parents that moved to Queens and um, a mother, my mother, who was always incredibly invested in this idea that I had this vision from the time I was 12 or 13 that I was going to work in a museum, and she did everything to make that possible. She also was incredibly proud of the way in which my work lived in the public arena. She just had an incredible issue with the content of most of the work that I showed. Okay? So blackmail was on the view at the Whitney for about three months. My mother probably never went past the title wall because of her sense of the number of nude blackmail bodies, and that just was there absolutely no way was she going to engage with that in any deep way. Thrill loved the show. Probably the reason the Whitney sold so many catalogs, my mother bought them. She gave them to every single one of my father's clients, but she just felt that art was something that should be beautiful, it should be uplifting, and she often made me know that. From that idea, I wondered, what, what does this mean, you know, an art and an art history that engages with an idea of beauty as its core? And so, began in about 2004, I think this happened, and did an open call exhibition for black artists, to black artists, to explore the idea of what a kind of radical figuration that was being created by black artists, specifically with this idea of making positive, uplifting images at its core could be. I did not seek to curate this show as I'd done any other, did it as an open call. This was the announcement that I sort of put out on the internet. I received couple hundred submissions, and from that, made an exhibition called Black Romantic, which looked at the figurative impulse in contemporary African-American art. Now, as I said, this really came out of my own wanting to encounter what really are the, the kinds of issues of taste that we bring to the table. And while often my work can be understood between this idea of this great mainstream and a margin, perhaps, in which black artists exist, moving to the Studio Museum, a space totally defined by our commitment to artists of African descent, which is incredibly freeing because it means that, for example, we don't have conversations at the Studio Museum about what it means to be a black artist, because in our universe, that means what does it mean to be an artist? because we are the Studio Museum in Harlem. But within that, I did want to explore what does it mean to have ideas about what constitutes great art, what languages of art, um, are able to be digested, and what languages of art end up in art history. This uh, work by Kadir Nelson, um, a painting that he made at the time of the exhibition that, you know, again, the trouble with aging is everything feels like yesterday, and then you look and you see it's 10 years later. But I was thrilled at the moment that um, 
Drake's album came out and all these young people came to me and they were like, Thelma, you have to see the cover of the new Drake. It looks just like your catalog cover. And Kadir, of course, uh, confirmed that quite deeply he'd continued making these sort of portraits, profiles against this kind of open sky work over these last 10 years. But this one called Africa, um, made in 2004. This was an exhibition which I say looked at the figurative impulse, but more importantly for me in my trajectory, it was an exhibition which opened me to the idea of the need for multiple art histories to encompass the artists who would be existing and who would be coming. Interesting in this exhibition, many of these artists did not operate within art worlds. They made their work, sold it totally outside of any mainstream commercial art world or institutional world. It was a world in which the studio museum didn't necessarily play a part. And for some of these artists, even an idea of recognition by an art world was, was not important at all. It was very equivalent in a manner that sort of reminded me of the graffiti artists. And it's what I knew that having, again, come of age in that moment, graffiti had shown me that for some people, when the space doesn't exist within those spaces that are already there, one makes their own, right? And this group of artists also had done the same in response to what they felt the needs of the community, however they defined it, meant. Interesting, and always for me, my exhibitions tend to need to have a meta moment for me to feel like I am asking questions while I'm answering them. This exhibition happened during the year when a young artist just graduated from the MFA program at Yale was in our residency program. His name was Kehinde Wiley. And Kehinde was in our studio and upstairs on the third floor, I was in curatorial on the second floor, going through these slides and Kehinde was fascinated by this work as deeply invested in its intensity, in its rigor, but also in the kind of just otherworldliness of the way in which it traveled and spent lots of time with me during that moment. And he, through this process, I realized, felt this kinship of wanting to explore this idea of the figurative as he was just beginning on the path, which now is so beautifully seen in the retrospective that's up at the Brooklyn Museum 10 years later. But the painting that is to you, or I can't tell what side it's on here, but the painting of the man with the hair around it was one of Gehinde's first paintings that he made during that year that we literally included in the exhibition um, as a way to kind of you know, create this pathway into this work, but also quite potentially out of it. And then to talk about Basquiat's legacy for me, and really more than anything, what it meant is that the freedom that he exhibited in the sense of self-definition that he brought into his engagement in the art world, not necessarily the freedom the art world gave him, but the freedom that he brought into it himself, was something that when thinking about how I might enter into a conversation about contemporary artists of African descent in 2000, 2001, as I began my path at the Studio Museum, it felt like it needed to create an openness of practice which would encompass not necessarily a direct link to the aesthetic innovation of Jean-Michel, but to the spirit. Could I create a curatorial path that opened up possibility for many different artists working in different ways. And the beginning of that was an exhibition in 2001 called Freestyle, which then has continued to um, reinvent itself in a series of exhibitions that we've referred to now as the F exhibitions at the Studio Museum, Frequency, Flow, and most recently, Four. 
all exhibitions which have taken on the idea of presenting emerging artists of African descent as a way to create terms by which to understand the multiplicity of voices working. Mark Bradford's work, who was in uh, freestyle, also Deborah Grant, a direct heir, again, to Basquiat's sensibilities. Shanique Smith, who was in Frequency, Nick Cave, also in Frequency, the second outing of this exhibition. Dewey Petros, uh, an artist in Four, which was the, uh, in Flow, which was the version of our F shows, which looked at artists of African descent working outside of the United States. So thrilled to be able to include Dawit in that exhibition and actually to have acquired this work for our collection. And Mustafa Maluka from South Africa, again, also in Flow. And Sienna Shields, who was in Four, which is the last outing of this exhibition, Sienna Shields, an artist of African descent raised in Alaska. So looking at, again, the wider sense of regionalism in the United States when it comes to sort of black visual production. Joshua Kloss, Brooklyn-based artist. And that is what I really thought of when I had that start, you know, when I had that moment when I saw this image and I thought, what would Jean-Michel be doing today if he were still alive? Who would Jean-Michel be connected to? What would he be thinking about in relation to art? I think of that every time I walk into an exhibition of an artist of that era, particularly most recently, the Jeff Koons retrospective at the Whitney. And I thought of, where would Jean-Michel be? Now, you know, it's hard to make artistic speculation because those of us who work with artists know how much artistic paths change, grow, develop, and that usually has nothing to do with a straight line, but a sort of circular path of investigation, of innovation, of sometimes ambivalence. But just even in the persona, I mean, Fab answered it in a way. We know he would have taken on what now we just call uh, being an artist, which is to work in multimedia, right, without lines between what that means. But I also wonder what, who he would have been to this generation of artists that I have been so privileged to work with, to the generation of artists who all understand him, not just in terms of his artistic career, but in his career as a true, true cultural icon. You know, when I say, as I say often, I didn't meet Basquiat, I realize, and I've said many times to Jeffrey Wright, that for a generation of artists, their understanding of Basquiat is through the portrayal of Jeffrey in that film. But what would it have meant if Jean-Michel, who is the same age as Glenn Ligon, an artist who has been so supremely generous to the generations who've come after him, what would it have meant if Jean-Michel had been around to have the kind of dialogues that I know that many of the artists of his generation have had with those after? What would he have told those artists about the art world that he entered, which is a very different one now? Who would he have seen in his own work, in their work? The artist, of course, this is most spoken about in profoundly problematic ways right now, is the really interesting young artist based in London named Oscar Murillo. Oscar is of Colombian descent, so an Afro-Latino Brit making his work in London, but like many of the artists of his generation, really living a sort of transnational life in the way in which the dialogue, in which the work exists. 
But often, you know, it, as is the burden of any young black male artist who enters into the art world with a distinctive voice and achieves a certain amount of not notoriety quickly, immediately their story becomes conflated in ways that are profoundly problematic, but also profoundly, I think, um, uh, complicated for a young artist to work through. Because as I say, I think there are very few artists of this generation for whom Basquiat's not important, but at the same time, it is hard to live within the shadow of the idea of how that story for so many people um, is understood. But when I think of Basquiat, I think of him again in those years that those works lived in the world and lived in them with him in the world as well. And we understood him as a sort of deliberate practitioner. You know, I often think of the Audre Lorde quote, you know, that, you know, I'm, you know, deliberate and unafraid, and I'm paraphrasing, but I often think about Basquiat being that, being super courageous and super deliberate in the ways in which he worked. And I see that in the work of artists like Micheline Thomas. I see in artists like Rashid Johnson this idea that to make work as a young black man means taking on in some way masculinity, yours as well as the way in which it traffics in the world itself. I see, of course, again, the multimedia nature, um, that work, artwork cannot be separated at all from the context of music and dance and popular culture, and that is evidenced in the amazing work of a young Brooklyn-based artist named Jacoby Satterway. But I also think of the commitment to understanding that to make painting means that you are looking at the history of painting in the past, but also always trying to blaze new paths. And that is what I see deeply in the work of the London-based artist Lynette Yedin Boache, who has really taken on the project of investing painting, figurative painting, with a set of ideas and ideals that come not simply from her identity, but her sense of her place in the history of the medium itself. I think of artists like Iona Rosiel Brown, whose work is directly responding to pop culture, but also trying to create alternatives from what are just the content-based mashups that are possible through new media and mixed media, but creating her own, right, in a way that creates a kind of new universe of images. Or, of course, Kehinde Wiley, because, again, you know, often when we think about an artist, you know, I, I'm always amazed, you know, I often talk to artists, and usually the question I often ask them is when they knew they were an artist. And there is a certain kind of artist, Basquiat was one, Kehinde is another, who always were artists, right? There was not a moment at which that was a choice that was made, but it was a path that was opened and they chose to walk down it. And Kehinde is one of those artists. He also, um, in the tradition of Basquiat, is an artist who is profoundly aware and deeply informed about the history of art and sees himself making works not just within the narrative he's creating himself, but in one that he has consciously tried to open up through the insertion of his works within that narrative. It'll be interesting, next week, Matthew reminded me this, next week, uh, amazing, a Basquiat exhibition is opening at the Brooklyn Museum of his notebooks, but it'll be up concurrently with Kehinde Wiley's retrospective. 
Um, I also think of an artist like Julie Moretu, who has blazed an interesting path through this idea of quite literally thinking about mark making and the way in which abstraction allows for, again, the making of new languages, but also through her own understanding of the way in which, as an artist, she is taking all the influences that are around her, very much in culture, in history, in the politics, and creating a system that looks at topography and cartography to map them and allow them to infuse what are essentially abstract works with deep and profound content. I often say for Julie, the mark is what the word was for Basquiat. Each of these marks really has a depth of content behind it and behind them. And then most immediately, you know, I've been thinking about this talk for a while, but we just opened on Wednesday a 10-year survey of the drawings of Trenton Doyle Hancock at the Studio Museum. It came to us from the Contemporary Art Museum in Houston, which um, was organized by my colleague Valerie Cassell Oliver. And Trenton, this exhibition of 10 years of his drawing as an artist also include, however, drawings he made as a child. Because from the time Trenton was six or seven years old, he saved every work he made and kept them. So this retrospective, again, an artist who always was an artist, looks at the way in which, through narrative, through cartoon and animation culture, he has created a singular visual style with a set of narratives that are all imagined. And over the last 10 years, but really from the time he was a child, has created a whole universe um, through his work. So we are thrilled. This exhibition is three days old, but it already has opened up, again, a wonderful conversation about new voices and the way in which they exist. As I said, I spent 12 years as a curator at the Whitney. Um, this is a painting in the Whitney collection called Hollywood Africans, which uh, is, again, Jordana spoke of it, but an amazing uh, painting because it speaks of that moment that Jean-Michel went to LA, but it also talks about this idea of the way in which he used these paintings to speak about himself and speak about his world to create for us little codes right, into what it meant to be thinking what he was thinking, but also in some cases to understand what we might be thinking ourselves. One of the amazing things about being a curator in a museum is that you get the opportunity to look at works over and over again. And this is a painting I got to look at hundreds and thousands of times while I worked at the Whitney. And I'm thrilled to be able to get to see it again as the Whitney opens their new building in a few weeks. But I know that whenever this painting was on the walls, what I often was drawn to was what I often think about when I think about Jean-Michel. And I think about the gift that he gave me in his example, in this work, in the story, which led me, again, along all these paths that have really enriched my curating. And while I haven't made an exhibition of his work, I see the way in which he has infused almost everything I have done. And when I would look at this painting, when I was a curator at the Whitney, um, the first African-American curator at the Whitney, a lot of about this painting was about these early voices and people in Hollywood and the way in which control of images was not always one's own. That was certainly a thought that I had as I deliberately 
you know, sort of at the Whitney, did the work that I came there to do. But really, what more than anything I would look for in this picture, as I look for in so many of Jean-Michel's, is his trademark crown. And that was because, you know, my path has been sort of created by so many people. So in that very same time, I was at Smith College, and I saw that image of Jean-Michel on the New York Times Magazine, and that opened something for me at that very moment when I was studying art history, but trying to understand where the black artists were in that art history I was being taught, when that absence created for me this incredible opportunity that gave me the sense of what my purpose and my passion would be for the rest of my life. I also, at that moment, had the great gift of being the student of the writer James Baldwin, who was teaching um, in the five college area at that time. And in his seminar, also at Amherst College, I realize now I took a lot of classes at Amherst College, and they all were transformative in one way or another. But in that class of James Baldwin's at Amherst College, James Baldwin talked to me a lot about artists and visual artists. He treated me, when I said I wanted to be a curator, he spoke to me in that time as if I already was and gave me several little assignments which I have enacted out in my life, I realized. One of them being, being at the Studio Museum, which he didn't say specifically, but he made me feel responsible in many ways for what he felt was the vast amount of work that needed to be done. But one of the other things that um, Mr. Baldwin did in that moment is he made us, of course, dig deep into his own work, right? Because here was this incredible gift, which also ended up being at the end of his life. I was his student in 85, 86. Mr. Baldwin died also in the late 80s. But you know, one of the things that he had said, and he would often repeat, um, which was something he had said, was, your crown has been bought and paid for. All you have to do is put it on your head. And this was a statement he made to and for African Americans so that we could understand you know, what was already the deep legacy that we had ourselves, that all we had to do was own it. And when I think about Jean-Michel, and every time I look at one of his paintings, and particularly when I look at Hollywood Africans, a painting, as I say, that sits in my heart in real profound ways, I look at that little crown, and what I realize is that Jean-Michel, in many ways, paid for my crown. He bought it for me. And what I've been trying to do in my curatorial work all these years is to wear it, and to wear it really well in a way that honors his profound, profound legacy. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, thank you. No, really. Thank you. Thank you. I know I went a little bit over my time, but I hope there might be a moment for questions. Is that possible? Yeah, we do have time for questions. So if you Comments, have one, just, just wave at us. And wait for the microphone. Sorry. Oh, yeah, thank you. Given that we've seen a drift from culture and, and art to race, for example, I'm, um, I'm surprised that we haven't seen the uh, move toward dialectical materialism. I mean, Marx said 
artists, our bourgeois, our proletariat, art historians and teachers are bourgeois. So why is it that these artists haven't thrown down on the probably the most important issue of the, the last, of the millennium, which is class struggle? Yeah, you know, it's, it's a really good question. And, you know, when I uh, became a curator in the late 80s and more significantly the 90s, often artists who dealt with identity or race in their work, it was often viewed as being political art, right? That was another kind of label that, you know, was sort of highly problematic for many artists because really what they felt they were doing was speaking to the issues that they thought were profound in their day. I think we're in a moment now where I don't find that artists are any less political. I think, however, what they see is, is a separation between the art practice and often political practice, and the way in which politics and art have a different relationship to themselves that isn't always content-based. Now, you know, it's interesting because about, um, I don't know, a couple years ago, we did an exhibition at the Studio Museum about a group of African-American artists in the late 60s who called themselves the Spiral Group. They were organized by the artists Romare Bearden and Norman Lewis, among others. And their goal was, through their work as African-American artists, to both sell work and make money to support the civil rights movement. And they had a direct link to the leaders of that movement. And they were raising money to support you know, all sorts of actions in that moment. And when we had the exhibition on view, this conversation is one that we sort of opened up. Where were artists on the issues of the day? Whether they be still considered racism, violence against you know, young black men, the incarceration crisis, classism, inequality, whatever it might be. And it was such an interesting conversation because it didn't fall. It wasn't so much that artists said, we are not interested in these issues. But it was an interesting conversation because everyone took a very individual path into understanding how to enact their rage or their agency towards change around the issues themselves. Hi, Hi. Alma. Um, I can't resist asking you this question. Go for it. Um, you know, in, in your work has been so informative to my own work in a lot of ways. And as I was talking about on the panel earlier this morning, you know, a lot of the vocabulary that you and, and sort of curators that are working with you have developed have been very useful to me, sort of applying retrospectively almost to the work of Jean-Michel. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit, um, this I asked for my students, um, about post-black. Mm -hmm. and, and maybe you know, thinking about it in particular of, of just your own personal understanding of the term and it's sort of its legacy, yeah. right? I think when we're talking about legacies, that is mm -hmm. one of the most um, emphatic yeah. contributions that you've made. And, mm -hmm. and if you, you know, have any sort of thoughts about its current um, yeah. circulation um, within sort of criticism. Yeah. So, you know, here's, here's the thing. Um, I have been working as a curator for, say, you know, 22 years in the field for about 27. And, you know, someone asked a question earlier about this sense that, you know, Basquiat was working fast because he had something to get done. Um, and my own work has been defined by that completely. So I don't live at all in the space 
that my shows have created. It was the most weird, trippy thing for me about a year ago when the world began reminding me that the 20th anniversary of the exhibition Blackmail would be in November of, 90, of 2014, because Blackmail opened November of 1994. And I just, for so many reasons, just could not get my head around that. Like 20 years later, it felt like yesterday, it felt like 100 years ago, it felt like, you know, to talk about what that moment was like, it was hard. Um, and I, Blackmail opened, and really that show has had a life of its own well beyond me. Post-black really happened and came to be. It was a term in the world already um, that some, in some cases, neoconservative, you know, black historical or cultural figures were using to sort of get away from what they thought was a stranglehold of race, but it was also being used by others to open up bigger conversations. Really, for me, it was a construction to take on what had already been the way in which I set out my curatorial work at the Whitney was, as I said, to imagine that Adrian Piper, David Hammonds, and Robert Colescott were beginning, what would then the work I do? And this informed my acquisition work there and informed all the work I did with the collection to kind of start there and work forward. Post-Black happened when I got to the Studio Museum in 2000, the generation of artists that I had worked with in really sort of radical ways, we're all now established mid-career artists. These are artists like Lorna Simpson, Carrie Mae Weems, Fred Wilson, Gary Simmons, Glenn Ligon. You know, we all began as very young, the 93 Biennial, all of us. I mean, that was my first curatorial outing for many of them. It was the first big show they were in. But, you know, fast forward and it's 2000, and they're all established artists. And I felt for myself that I had to reset in order to productively engage with work of the moment. I mean, Fab said that, you know, people often sort of the music of the moment that they, you know, most become from teenage to adult becomes important to them, right? So that's why, you know, if you walk in my house, you know, a Tribe Called Quest would be on deep rotation, right? Because that just defines, right? Just uh, so many things, right, for me. And many curators, Marsha Tucker, the legendary founder and director of the New Museum, had an idea that curators should curate artists of their generation, literally, and stay with them. She said that to me once, that that was an idea of perhaps how to work in a most profound way. I didn't take that advice completely. I got to the Studio Museum and I thought, I have to think of this differently. I'd also inherited an institution created in the late 60s, deep out of the black arts movement, huge ideologies, right, that inform that moment. I come from the Whitney Museum after the 90s, multiculturalism, the margin, the center, bell hooks. So, you know, I walked in the door with about 55 pieces of luggage that all had to be unpacked in order for me to make a show, right? And that's like a whole lot to do to make an exhibition. Um, and so, Glenn Ligon has been my most consistent interlocutor over the last 26 years. We talk four or five times a day. Um, now with you know, technology that is in all forms, but this has been going on for 27 years. We talk about everything. Anytime I have an idea, I usually say it to Glenn, and he usually says it back to me. That's how I know if it makes any sense. Um, there's not an exhibition I've done that I have not in some way tested my sense of where I'm going. So at that moment, I said to Glenn, is there a possibility that there is a way that I can talk about young black artists without the black arts movement, or this conception, right, that we all have issues with, because I heard it earlier, about what is black art, can that happen? And because we talk all the time, 
we have a, a, a construction called One Word. And it's simply because our lives are busy now. You know, I run a museum, so I can't be on the phone with Glenn all day. So we often, like, you know, there might be a conversation that should take an hour, and we just say one word. Like, he'll call me up and say, like, to, like tonight, he might say to me, how was the conference? And, you know, he'll say, I don't have time, one word. So I'll have to sum this whole day up in one word. So we one word all the time. And Glenn and I were both seeing lots of young artists, excited about them, but all different. Nothing that would tie one to another, just all this amazing work. And we would compare notes. He'd go do crits places. And we began to discuss these artists as being post-black. Right? It, it was post-black art would, would have been the, the larger way to frame it. But it was a framing that was about, is there a way that we can get away from this idea that there is one lineage of a kind of culturally specific presentation and understand that there can be these generational shifts. It's not about a rejection, it's actually the opposite. It's a, it's a looking at what was there but then coming up with something new. So post-black was really, it wasn't a style, it wasn't a movement, it was a way to bracket a moment and to see if that bracketing could open something up that would provide more space for more artists to work in. Simple as that. Now, it has a whole life, it has dissertations, it has all kinds of stuff that I know nothing about, right? I mean, I, again, the only way I keep working is to stay out of sometimes, right, being in the work that already happened. So I can't really comment on what I think of what's happening with it. What I always hope to do is provide the space through making shows, because that's what I am. I am, I am very, proud to say that you know I am singularly a curator. I'm not an art historian, I'm not a cultural critic. I make exhibitions. And in that making of exhibitions and the making of space that exhibitions create, that's what I hope can happen, that there can be a space for dialogue. And that's what happened with post-black as it was framed around freestyle, but also continues to exist as a way to either react to or to create something new from. Uh, yeah, thank you for, uh, you know, sure. <laughs> yes, uh, thank you for sharing uh, some of your, uh, you know, vast contrib uh, contributions to uh, the uh, arts world in general, uh, visual arts in particular. Um, question, it's uh, two questions. Um, one, I wanted you to talk about the importance, the mandate and mission of the Studio uh, Museum of, of Harlem because it is something uh, very specific. Uh, oftentimes um, in, in Toronto when people you know, can be curator or presenter. You say, you, I want to target, uh, you know, uh, you know, African-Canadian in this instance. It could be another culture. It is oftentimes met with a harsh criticism, uh, given some of the feelings around post-racial, post-black. Uh, why does it need to be just, uh, you know, for black artists? Why can't it be a sort of kumbaya, multi-culti kind of moment? I want to talk about that a little bit. Um, and if you can, if there's any anecdote as well as a established African-American art artists are able to access, uh, you know, the MoMA's new museums. Have any artists, you know, sort of rejected this idea of, you know, doing it in a space that is proudly, positively, prog progressively black, you know, bypassed maybe the Studio Museum in favor of yeah. exhibiting at, uh, you know, another instit institution that, uh, if you have any sort of anecdotes that yeah. way. Yeah. You know, I think that this issue of, you know, is it either or is one that I just don't accept. I'm in the, you know, both end. And I think there are many examples of where this operates completely fluidly in ways that don't bring up this questioning. Um, but when you add race into it, that's when it becomes so complicated, right? So the idea that, yes, 
The Studio Museum was founded in 1968 at a time when mainstream museums were not showing the work of black artists. If they were collecting it, they were not hanging it. They were not necessarily engaged at all in a dialogue that had to do with black artists. So the museum's founders were people who said, we will make our own museum. That's a you know, proud tradition, right? When you stand in a space and you see something that you want to have happen, one idea is to change what might exist, and other is do, do it your own way. And that's what the Studio Museum really amazing, it's, it's something that really does invigorate our spirit even now, right? The idea that they weren't waiting for a change in the art world to happen, they're like, we're gonna create our own museum, because it was done in very modest circumstance, all right? With you know, very little space and no money, but this grand idea, which now 46 years later, I feel privileged to exist as its leader, but with all this history behind it. The truth is, the museum in its years from say 75 to the late 80s, did change the art world, created groundbreaking shows that rewrote art history, that reinserted some of the figures that had long been just ex out of the story, created new languages so that people could understand how to talk about what this might be. And coming there in 2000, it gave me the freedom to potentially imagine that I could ignore the idea that maybe there would be this sense of, is it better to show at the Whitney versus the Studio Museum is one you know, greater than the other. But to imagine that I could create a space in which a parody, though defined by difference, could exist, right? This plays out in our program very specifically because different museums, no matter who they are, should do different things. So I don't have an anecdote necessarily of an artist who has said to me, you know, I don't want to show with you because I want to show with them. What I have more is a deep kind of um, active co-conspiracy between artists and I who all have the same idea. We want to see more black artists in more places all the time. So how can, from where I sit strategically, can we make that happen? So for emerging artists, does it mean we do these big group shows so that, yes, some of these artists will end up in the world in these institutions? Does it mean for the mid-career artists, we do the really specific project, the thing that's going to really make you maybe understand that artist in a different way that they couldn't do in another environment? Is it that we do the survey of the artist who maybe needs a deep kind of freedom? The Trenton Doyle Hancock show, I mean, he keeps apologizing to me. He is drawn all over our walls at the Studio Museum. And I was like, more power to you. Go ahead. But you know, to give an artist an opportunity to do something that couldn't happen anywhere else. And for the senior artists or for our legacy, can we continue to create the space for new art histories? Can we, can we say there's a different way maybe to look at a 19th century still life painter like Charles Ethan Porter, right? Can, and can we host that show so that people can see that differently? So I don't necessarily, I just don't accept that. I live in an amazing amount of self-created reality. You know, um, I do, I do, I do. Um, so I don't kind of operate within some of these constructs. That's why, you know, when people, you know, and I understand the sort of, you know, the, the challenge of what it means to feel burdened by some of these things, but I just ignore them. Honestly, I don't live within them. And so that's why perhaps, you know, maybe someone has not been showing at the Studio Museum, but I wouldn't know that because I've just kept going with the idea that we're creating this space for all in ways that are defined by the artists themselves. We have one, another one over here. Check, check, two, two. Uh, thank you so much. You're Thelma, welcome. I came out to see you. I was rewarded like 
halfway into your presentation, so thank you so much. It's been a wealth of information. Um, kind of actually carrying on with the, the post-black conversation, mm -hmm. and as you said, you're creating, well, as we know, like, the Studio Museum is kind of like the pinnacle. It's been, as you said, 46 years. It's kind of the pinnacle of showing black art and expressing mm -hmm. black art. So um, I guess my question is to you as a curator and just, um, I guess, as an intellectual, who are, where are your inspirations? You've shown us so much, but like, in terms of systems or structures and, and other creative places, what are some of those, mm -hmm. those bigger ones? Thank you, thank you for that. You know, my inspirations really come from the kind of, you know, radical sort of change makers, you know, the, ship shaped, the shifters, you know, the people who've changed the shape of what we are. As I said, I went to Smith College and feel very lucky to have gone there. Amazing, amazing women's college. And one of the things I learned early on there was that it's also where Dorothy Miller went. And Dorothy Miller was really, in many people's minds, the first curator at the Museum of Modern Art. You know, she graduated from Smith in 1926, went to MoMA shortly after its founding, did a pioneering set of exhibitions through the 40s and the 50s called The Americans, at a time when people weren't so invested in American art. These exhibitions of emerging artists included, you know, name any canonical figure right, Johns, Rauschenberg, et cetera, from that era, she included them first. That, for me, was a primary sort of curatorial inspiration, the idea that the institution is what is created by those inside of it, right? and that defined my time at the Whitney. Deeply inspired by Lowry Stokes Sims, who was the first African-American curator at the Metropolitan Museum, who became the director of the Studio Museum in 2000, who hired me and gave me the space to do this work and then who, when she retired, I became director. Um, people like Marsha Tucker, who I named, who was um, fired from the Whitney Museum um, in the 70s and founded the new museum. So again, when space doesn't exist, you create it. So the idea that to wait sometimes for things is not necessarily what one needs to do, but you sort of go out and blaze a path. I'm inspired by many of my colleagues who are working now, and I sort of take what I do as part of a community of people um, who all see ourselves as having an impact on just opening and widening the dialogue. But you know, I'm most inspired, as I now sit at this point in my career, by the many, many young voices, some of whom, yes, have worked for and with me, like Franklin Sermons and Naomi Beckwith and Jamila Johns and um, Thomas Lax, but others who have just been in the world and blazing what I see as even more radically profound paths than I ever could in the 80s and 90s, and they're doing it now. And I'm deeply inspired by that, and my desire to continue to make space is about that. Is this on? Yes, it, it is. is. Yes. Thank Can you. Can I just say one tiny sure. thing? Because you're going to stop me. We're I done. am going to stop yeah. you. Yeah. No, but I have say one to. or two. There's one tiny thing, because, you know, Fab is here, and like I said, you know, Fab, I think that when everyone's asking this question about, you know, what would Jean-Michel be doing, what, who would he be, I think that we also have to acknowledge your presence as the voice who continues to speak to not just what the radicalism of that era was and all that you all did, but, I mean, you know, who, who among us, right, did not know, I mean, many of you are too young for this, but like, yo MTV reps, Fab was schooling us like in our rooms after school, right, as we watch yo MTV reps. No, and it wasn't just, 
It wasn't just about hip hop fab, you were creating this idea that these were important cultural icons. I have to just say this one thing, because really, I don't think I've ever said this to you. We're neighbors, you know, Harlem, we hang out. So I don't know why I'm having this conversation with you now, because we could have it at home, but here we are. <laughs> But you know, uh, as you all know, you know, there's so many ways we can talk about Fab, but of course, immortalized in Blondie's song, Rapture, right? I don't have to tell you that song. Okay, right? Literally, 1981, of course, me and all my girls, we'd go to the clubs, and you know, that would come on, Rapture, and we'd sing along. And I always thought the line, which actually is, Fab Five Freddy told me everybody's fly. I always thought that she was saying, and I told Debbie this, I always thought she was saying, Fab Five Freddy makes everybody smile. But the thing is, no, and I've been saying that for years. And it probably wasn't until like Rap Genius that I realized like, oh, that's not what that lyric is. And I said that to her, but I also though say to you though, Fab, I have to tell you that story because you do always make me smile, right? Because you always come with the knowledge and you always come with the love. So, you know, my love to you, Fab. And so, um, Thelma, thank you for bringing the knowledge and making us smile, uh, teaching us a lot today. That was a terrific presentation. So um, please, one more time, um, let's give it up for Thelma well, Thank Golden. you to you. Oh. Mm. Thanks to all of you. Yeah. Really. So I'm going to come up and just make a couple of... You don't uh, mind, I have to clean up because yeah, no, I made a mess up Hang out. Um, and just make a couple of um, uh, kind of sum summation remarks of a sort. Um, but I want to put you all on notice that part of the, um, you know, the closing uh, uh, time of this wonderful day is about hearing from you um, in, a, you know, in another moment now that you've had a chance to think not only about the comments that were put forward at each of the individual panels, um, but also the way that they start to thread together into a conversation that has built on itself over the course of the day. So um, I'm gonna say a few things, but then we'll, um, we'll be moving around with the mics again and asking, um, asking for you to share thoughts uh, about some of the things that have inspired you, moved you, frustrated you, um, you know, and, 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 and perhaps some of the questions that you will carry away with you um, as we continue this and other conversations going forward. So, um, but before I go into that, I mean, Thelma, especially since you're sitting right here. Yeah. <laughs> um, thank you so much for that, that, um, that presentation. And, you know, as you were name checking people like, um, you know, like Marsha and Lowry, um, I want to thank you for being a force of inspiration for so many, um, so many curators. I was fortunate enough to have this kind of, um, you know, starry-eyed experience with my first professional work trip to New York from Houston, where I was based at the time, just getting started, curatorial assistant, and it happened to coincide with the opening of the 1993 Whitney Biennial. Mm. And that was a powerful thing to encounter and really helped um, set a standard for the kind of work that institutions can do when they take seriously uh, the work not only of finding new art and new voices and bringing those forward, but also taking, up, taking on issues that matter. So thank you. Thank you. Um, so, um, also, of course, a, a thanks to all, all of the panelists and the moderators. The level of conversation today and the, um, 
you know, clarity of the discussion and the chemistry between all of you was really quite wonderful. Um, you know, sometimes you have panelists where everybody's individually really smart and there's not a conversation that builds across the group. People talk over each other and, and things don't build. Things built today and that was really, um, really fantastic. So thank you um, for bringing that. Um, I was also struck by the ways that, um, you know, throughout the day, everyone went very deep into Basquiat's work, provided us with um, specific, uh, you know, very nuanced ways of reframing and re-examining uh, re his practice and specific works within his larger, um, his larger career, but also made uh, very powerful connections out to larger issues within art, within the worlds of culture, uh, within society. So um, really, you know, extending the case that, um, that the exhibition makes in some ways, but bringing us many new frames uh, with which to think about the work. So I'm just gonna list a couple of things um, in my scrawled notes that, um, that I kind of jotted down about some of the things that stuck out for me uh, across the panels. Um, by no means exhaustive, but meant to be provocative and, um, uh, also, it's just a way to help me process some of the things that I was listening to. And then we'll turn, uh, turn the mics over to you. So, um, you know, first of all, I think, you know, this goes back to something that Thelma was saying at the end about this idea of um, empowerment. And, you know, it, it's a thing that I think about sometimes in relation to uh, artists who are engaged uh, with different forms of uh, public practice and socially engaged practice, people from a lot of different kinds of backgrounds who are grappling with, um, with you know, often political issues. And it's an idea of making the world you wanna live in and really trying to um, take, forward, uh, you know, take forward a notion of um, how the world might be otherwise. Um, and that's something that we certainly saw in, uh, in Basquiat's work. It's something that's come up in your practice and many of the other practices that were put on the table today or that you know, people are, are um, embodying in their work every day. Um, uh, so yeah, that idea of empowerment and self-creation, um, but also a recognition of the forces that can push against that and making, make it difficult for some to, um, you know, that, that make it easier for some to realize that empowerment than others. Um, the, uh, the, the, the importance of context and the many different frames that uh, are brought to bear on Basquiat's work uh, the idea that came up in the first panel from Jordana of timeliness um, versus timelessness, sort of thinking about, um, I think we heard from, you know, in, over and over again through the day about the importance of 1980s New York um, and that particular context in Basquiat's neighborhood um, when he was a kid, but also the, um, you know, the importance of the cultural milieu of, um, you know, of downtown New York and how important that was for him. So, you know, so we're uh, assessing the work in relation to a very specific time and place, but then also thinking about what it means to look at that work right now in Toronto um, in 2015 and um, opening up a, a kind of space of freedom. So on the one hand, it's really important to do that art historical, cultural, critical work of thinking about what it meant for him to be a person in a particular body from a particular cultural heritage in, um, in a specific uh, place, but also that there, the work resonates in many ways that go, um, you know, that extend far beyond that. Um, and also the idea of the, the shifting frames of academic 
uh, uh, thinking. So there are a whole bunch of new tools uh, that exist now that didn't exist when Basquiat was, um, work, Basquiat's work was making. Um, that was a point that Doug Moy uh, made earlier. And also talked in, a, in, a, in an extension of that, he used this um, beautifully provocative phrase about the provincialization of Europe and the way that Basquiat's work um, hooks into a larger um, set of shifts within curatorial practice and institutional practice where we can start to think about um, uh, mutual exchange and interrelation across cultures rather than the kind of one-way tr uh, transmission you know that had been part of the, an understanding of how we come to a, uh, come to understand value in art um, and then finally, and this is the big one, um, the catch-22 of identity politics that really occupied the last panel. Um, I have some, some friends who work in a museum in the Netherlands, and they talk about, um, they have this phrase that they use when they're in the middle of a big idea um, or big problem usually, and they say, you know, we're busy with dot, dot, dot. And it felt like today we were really busy with the question of blackness and um, black Canadianness, and how to think about that and talk about how to, how to take those words and to get into them with nuance, um, with criticality, uh, with generosity, um, and to think about, you know, there, there was a lot of real um, intensity around that question, both within individual practices and in relation to institutional positions. So, um, so with that, um, all of these, so those are a couple of the things that were on my mind. I've got pages of notes. I'm not gonna go any further into any of that, but you've given me a lot to think about and to carry forward in my own work and in our work at the AGO. And, um, and that's the beauty of a day like this. A gathering like this should always be generative rather than conclusive. Right? It's a failure if we walk away at the end of the day and we feel like, okay, we've wrapped that up. We're done with it. This was a day that generated a lot of big things for us to, um, to think about with nuance, criticality, and although um, I hope without a kind of kumbaya spirit, um, certainly with optimism. So thank you. So um, I'm, I'm getting down the stage because the, we only have two mics and we need to be able to hand them around. Um, but I'd like now to, um, to ask you guys to, you know, to join in the conversation and as an additive incentive, there is a bar, but you can't go to it until several of you speak. <laughs> yeah. So does anybody have a comment? Exactly. <laughs> Hi. Um, I just think uh, I wanted to follow up on the last uh, point that Stephanie brought up, which is the catch-22. I think one of the most fundamental things that came out in the conversation today, and it isn't just around the conversation about um, uh, black art or black Canadian identity, it's a bigger conversation, I think, about the whole notion of what is Canada, what is Canadian, and my responsibility here at the AGO is, is curator of Canadian art, so I think about these things along with my colleagues. So that conversation, as Stephanie said, being generative, I think is really important, and it's a, it's a, it's a big stepping off point, I think, 
to be thought about within a wider conversation within Canada and what does it even mean to be a country, a, a national identity, those kinds of issues. But I think it also goes out and beyond that, the comment earlier um, that came from Freddie about, you know, there is one race, a human race, and I think we also need to be thinking in that bigger narrative as a species as well, in the state of both nation and multi-nations. Um, so I think those are the, those are the catch-22 things that I come back to out of the conversation of the day. I think the other thing I wanted to comment on, it was, it was interesting to listen, um, you know, thinking about a responsibility here, but to how the museum in Harlem has evolved, how it had a very particular kind of a role, and then how do you reimagine that role, how do you expand that role, um, and I think that's, again, something that coming back as somebody working within a place like AGO is thinking about the role the institution has played and how that role is constantly changing. Um, and the particular moment that we're in now is a, as an institution within a conversation about a city and that city's future and a country and a country's future. So I wanted to share that. So. It seems to me that um, one of the things you've done, perhaps accidentally, was have uh, the Basquiat exhibition and the one about lots uh, at the same time. And in both cases, they're very constrained by time. The lots exhibition is obviously, I think it's about 1940 to 40, uh, 44. And then this one is a two-year period. Both of them were periods of turbulence. Um, where in one case a war, in the other case just a time of turbulence. And I think it would be interesting to have more exhibitions like that where there's something behind happening in history or in culture uh, that uh, pushes people to make a certain kind of art of necessity in the case of Lotz and of necessity in the case of uh, Jean-Michel. End of my comment. Uh, hi. Um, I'd just like to genuinely and sincerely thank you for putting this on. Um, I recall the moment last year when I went to MoMA and I asked them, hey, where are your baskets? And they're like, we don't have any. I'm like, what? <laughs> so that, that was quite a bit shocking at the time. But I'd just like to say that um, uh, when I came here, um, Looking at the pieces, uh, it conveyed this idea, which I already mentioned to, to a few of you uh, a minute ago, and that art basically is a vehicle for emotions, and emotions are lived universally. So as long as we can translate um, those feelings, I guess it keeps the conversation open and it keeps the discussion ongoing, which I like the theme that was um, discussed in the previous panel that we come out um, with, with not a sense of conclusion, but with a sense that the conversation keeps on going. Thank you. Um, as an artist who has been teaching and working in the States for five years and just moved back a few couple years ago um, to uh, Toronto, I am Canadian, I've been reflecting kind of quietly and privately on the differences uh, across the border. And the conversation today, especially the uh, discontent around um, 
the uh, openness and the opportunities available to artists of color, to black artists in Canada, really resonated with me. Um, and I've been asking, what is that about? And I think one of the things that did happen south of the border was a lot of sacrifice and risk that was taken by artists and activists in the civil rights movement and people who were brave enough to stand up in times of trauma um, through the AIDS crisis, through all of these things that really, through crisis, brought populations together, brought people together for a cause. And we're so polite and we're often cushioned here in Canada. And I'm wondering, when will we be able to enact our rage or enact our need for activism and identify a crisis that will then not allow what's happening here to be ignored on the international stage? Okay, I want to speak to that last comment. That last comment, my interpretation kind of makes a assumption that nobody's actually doing anything. There's lots of artists that are doing stuff. If, um, if people don't want to write about it, if academics in the room that know us don't want to bring us into their classes, and also write about us. I mean, there's, I don't know what more you really want. But a lot of us have been doing stuff. We've been making tons of sacrifices. You know, I'm at an age where it's like not even a joke to be an artist at this point in my life. Do you know what I'm saying? So I think the States has a very different and specific history than Canada. And I think that has to be acknowledged. So it's not so much about people here complaining and not doing things. We're doing things all the time and making our own opportunities. And I know I probably wouldn't be as far as I am without probably my artist colleagues uh, doing things and me writing opportunities that they have or them letting me know of stuff and vice versa. So I have a bit of a problem kind of hearing, like maybe that's not fully what you meant, but that's how it kind of sounds to me. I would probably bring it more to People who write for publications, anybody that has a course, what's up? I just wanted to support what, um, man, I can't stand talking in public, but um, what Karen was saying in that, I've always said, I'm an artist as well in Toronto, and I've always, um, I've always, said that the system has to work. And I believe that all parts of the system has to be in action. So artists create work and whatever work you want to create. I am an artist who creates work about my experience as a black person in this country. I totally am about that. Um, yet other artists who are speaking on other issues, I'm totally supportive of that as well. I think that writers should write about our work, collectors should collect our work, um, curators should create exhibitions with our work, studio visits need to be happening, and I speak to a lot of artists in this country who do not receive studio visits by all sorts of people, by all sorts of curators, um, many black curators. So I just wish that this system would work a little bit more 
actively. That's all I ask. And I will, you know, my position as an artist, I will do my best at creating strong work, as I hope my colleagues will also do. Um, I had something else to say that when I was listening to Thelma's uh, talk, and I've heard Thelma speak before, I'm always so appreciative at the work that I see that is being done. And I went, a, many years ago, I went to a, um, a conference in New York. It was here and now, I think, conference. It was at NYU. And that, for me, inspired so much. There were panels that included the patrons, the curators, the directors of galleries, the collectors, the emerging artists, the older artists. It seemed like there was probably like issues there too. There's issues all over the world. But it seemed like their, their system was happening in some way. And I came back here wanting that. So anyway, that's all I want is a system to be you know, functioning. Um, hi, yeah, I'd, I'd like to build on what you've both said. Um, and I think we're kind of touching on the structures and the systems that are in place in Canada. And I just feel like there are lots of opportunities to vent or to, to express our feelings and all of that, but there aren't, there aren't really ways to change the structures. And like an opportunity like this, like why aren't, we, why aren't curators collecting emails from artists? Why aren't writers getting, why isn't there like, um, you know, writers getting together with artists um, so that they get to know each other and um, appointments being made after that. Like, why is it just being left um, for everybody to go into their own little cubby holes afterwards? So that's one thing. I think social media might help towards that, but especially if you're coming new to the country. And I mean, I've been out of here, I've been out of Canada for a year and I feel totally out of sync. <laughs> so um, I think that's one thing. The other thing is, I guess I'm going to go out online, is um, the what is black and what are you allowed to speak to, who is black, um, and the, the black community about how inclusive it can be or not, um, and then about, I think, what you were saying, um, speaking to other issues, um, how inclusive is the entire Canadian community about anyone speaking, like, not being white and being able to speak about other issues. I think that's that crosses cultures as well. Thanks. Um, I just wanted to add to all of these things in terms of, in follow-up to these two comments. Um, for me, I feel like this question of Canadian politeness is really important to bring up, and it's not necessarily on the part of artists of color, communities of color, but it's definitely, definitely important to talk about in terms of the response to the kinds of dissent and challenges and work that these communities are doing. Um, and within institutional spaces like this, I think that in Canada, there's this great discomfort with how impolite it is to be political and to be active in those ways. And that's something that we really need to take on and address and that these kinds of institutions and organizations I think need to be willing to look at in another way. So that's what I wanted to add to that. Yeah, thank you. That's a great, um, a great way to end. Um, you know, sorry, back in the back now because that's <laughs> that's where the, uh, the where the mics were. But um, 
really thank you for, um, for the provocations and the invitations that have been offered in many different ways today. Um, I did want to make one quick correction. Um, Thelma gave me great uh, credit as curator of the exhibition, but um, it was actually curated by a wonderful art historian named Dieter Buchhardt, and there's a whole team at the AGO of which I was one member. So just wanting to be sure that my, uh, my colleagues get, uh, get appropriate credit for that, although thank you. Um, so thank you all for, um, for spending the day with us. It's been a really rich day, great conversation. I hope it will continue. Um, please join us now for, um, for drinks. Thanks. Thank you for listening to this Art Gallery of Ontario podcast. For additional recordings, as well as information on upcoming programming and events, please visit us online at ago.net slash talks.